We come tonight to, to Psalm 2. Psalm chapter 2, it is a text that I've laid out for months, of course unaware of all that would occur over the past weeks and particularly today. If you're using a pew Bible, you'll find it there on page 552. It's so difficult in our world today. The continuous stream of events weigh heavy upon our hearts. All of this violence. How do we react? How do we understand these components? What, as the children of Christ, do we do when we hear these things? Well, first, we're to expect it. It's exactly what we just read in 2 Timothy 3. The Lord told us that persecutions would come, be it to our country for their rebellion against God, our church for our testimonies against violence. It will come. We do stand as a beacon of truth. In our prayer time this evening, it was repeatedly emphasized, we are that bastion of truth in Mobile. Not in and of ourselves, there are others, but we stand prominently. And many in this community know full well what this church stands for. And it isn't just those in the church community that understand that. And we will continue to stand against that violence. And that persecution in one form or another has and will continue to come. Satan's desire is to destroy. And his fingerprints are all over every one of these events. So first, we must expect it. Second, we must turn to the Word of God. It alone is our hope. It is our strength. It is our solace in times of need. These are to be our responses, beloved. And it's exactly what we see in our text tonight. I've titled our message this evening, Your Requisite Response. Your Requisite Response. Let's take a look together at the second psalm. Psalm chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Let me read the text for us. Why are the nations in an uproar and the people devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, but as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. Now therefore, O kings, show discernment. 
Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son that he not become angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. Your requisite response. The psalmist lays out four sections in our text today. Each one directly relates to the situations which we're encountering in our world right now and in our country and in the states adjacent to us. All of these things perfectly explained by the psalmist. First, from a, a general structural point of view, recognize that this psalm is broken up into four sections of three verses each. The first verse exposes the concept that's going to be discussed. The third verse of that section answers the point that was exposed in the first verse. It's a very rhythmic and standard application and structure which we'll see repeated throughout the text. Let's look at our first point. I've titled our first point, A Desire to Disassociate. A Desire to Disassociate in verses 1 to 3. What does it mean to disassociate? It means to desire to be taken away from, to separate, to be on your own. And of course, exactly what we see in the text. Verse 1 begins with a question, why? Why are things this way? Much like the question we're asking today. Why is this so? Why is there this idiocy? Why are people attacking the sanctity of human life? Why are those who put their lives on the line being selected for execution in such a fashion? There's no answer. Just a deplorable reality of that which is going on. But beloved, we find solace in recognizing that God understands exactly the why. And he asked it long before. The word nations here in verse 1 can also be translated as Gentiles. This first stanza is not talking about a national rebellion. And the second stanza confirms this. You remember how the Psalms parallel in poetic fashion with the two stanzas, both points, either adding to or contrasting that which is said in the first stanza. Here it is adding to. And the peoples are further clarifying the nations or the Gentiles. The subject of this first verse is those who are antagonistic to God. Those contrary to God's people. In our case and in this application, the nation of Israel and those who are antagonistic to them. In our day and age and in our application, it is each of these that are purporting these atrocities against our God and against all that we would hold dear and right and true. The verbs confirm their rebellion. They are in an uproar. They are devising a vain thing. The word, the word uproar here means to be restless or to rage. When we consider the aspects of anger, anger, malice, wrath, and rage. There is, there is in the New Testament this description of how our anger progresses 
This is why anger is so dangerous. And why we must make so certain that if there is any vestige of it in our lives, that it must be ruthlessly rooted out. As parents, as young people, as older people, we cannot allow anger to take a foothold in our lives. It will destroy us. It is destroying those in our country. It is the focus of these actions that are going forth. They are raging. The parallel of devising a vain thing means to growl or to talk to oneself by scheming. It is when that manifestation of anger continues to the point that we begin to scheme about what we're going to do about it. I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that, and it results in the kind of actions that we see in our world today. The general context of this is rebellion and it is evil. Psalm 83, verses 2 to 5, convey this in a, in a more extracted form. Psalm 83, beginning in verse 2, says, For behold, your enemies make an uproar, and those who hate you have exalted themselves. They make shrewd plans against your people and conspire together against your treasured ones. They have said, come and let us wipe them out as a nation, that the name of Israel be, will, will be remembered no more. For they have conspired together with one mind against you they make a covenant. So is the same circumstance against the church today in the world in which we live. There is a, a formal effort ongoing, which is no surprise to any of us, to remove any vestige of God from our nation's public monuments. There's an ongoing effort that has continued and began back in the 1960s with the removal of prayer from the schools and then the removal of the Bible from the schools. And I just read an email from a friend in California who has now said that the LGBT initiatives will be made public educational material in the first through eighth grade school system in the California, in California state system, and it is mandated. It will be happening this year. Anything they can do to remove God, anything they can do to exalt themselves, to conspire together against his treasured ones. Are there any more treasured ones to the Lord than his children? Did we not repeat this morning, Matthew 18, 3, that we are to come to the Lord as children? And what do the following verses say in 18, 4, and 5? If anyone causes one of these to stumble, better that he has a millstone hung around his neck and that he's cast into the sea. Some of us, when we think about that, we're like, oh, that, that means that person would drown. Think about that concept of the violence that God brings against those who would make his little ones to stumble. A millstone is larger than this pulpit. If it were hung around your neck and you were thrown into a thousand feet of water, you would not drown. You would blow apart because you would sink so rapidly. The violence that God will bring against those who causes his children to stumble is unconscionable. Verse 2 carries the audience from the general to the specific. It is the kings and the rulers as well as the people. They all take their stand. They all take their counsel together. They are preparing an offensive 
and they are conspiring corporately to do this. All of these phrases convey a desire to dissociate, to move away from God, to take anything of any connectivity to holiness, to righteousness, and to remove it from them. The third stanza of this tricolon in verse 2 serves as a conclusion. You remember that most poetic structures in the Psalms have two verses. When there is a third verse, it indicates either an introduction, a conclusion, or a transition. In this case, it is serving as a conclusion. And it says in that third stanza, against the Lord and against his anointed it is against Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God. A very interesting use there. They are not choosing Elohim, the creator God, the mighty God, El Shaddai, God Almighty, El Sabaoth, the Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies, but it is Yahweh. It is the covenant-keeping God which they are seeking to attack. It is his anointed, his Messiah, his Christ, and verse 3 tells of their desire. Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. This is their desire. A fetter is a, is a chain or a, a form of bondage. We might uh, consider it like a handcuff or an ankle shackle. Likewise, cord in the second stanza would be something that would be used to bind someone. We see it as Samson first describes to Delilah the way that his strength may be taken if he is bound with new cords. The same aspect of the cord is there. Their attitude here is also reflected in Jeremiah 2 and verse 20. Jeremiah writes in chapter 2 and verse 20, for long ago I broke your yoke and tore off your bonds, but you said I will not serve. For on every high hill and under every green tree you have lain down as a harlot. What a statement against those rejecting to serve God. Jeremiah 5.5, 5, a couple chapters later, takes it further and makes a similar extended parallel. And he says in verse 5 of Jeremiah 5, I will go to the great and I will speak to them for they know the way of the Lord and the ordinances of their God. But they too with one accord have broken the yoke and burst the bonds. Therefore, a lion from the forest will slay them. A wolf of the deserts will destroy them. A leopard is watching their cities. Everyone who goes out of them will be torn in pieces because their transgressions are many. Their apostasies are numerous. Beloved, we have to recognize that there is a component of all of these things that is the judicial reckoning of a holy God against a land that is rejecting his Messiah. We are becoming more and more of a radical minority. The northeast of our country has been labeled by the Associated Baptists for World Evangelisms on the same parallel as Western Europe with less than 0.2% of confessing evangelical Christians. 
That's the United States. We are in the South. We are in the Bible Belt. Everybody goes to church. How many of those going to church go to a church that professes the whole truth of Jesus Christ? How many of it are waffling on it and going further and further from that truth all the time? Reading a wonderful book now called When the Church Bell Rang Racist about the Methodists in Alabama and Florida during the 50s and 60s and how the Methodist church and those few numbers sought to hold fast to the gospel. But most were waffling and desiring their segregation. They would not speak for the truth. The Methodist church today is preparing to adopt gay pastors on a national basis. The churches are falling like flies. There are so few who are proclaiming the truth Notice when we look at verse 3, the plural object, let us tear their fetters and their cords. They recognize the fact that there is a plurality to the Godhead. It is not his fetter, it is not his cord, it is theirs. How is it that they understand? How is it that those that don't know God understand that there is a multiple component, a Trinitarian component to God? Romans 1, God has revealed it to them. Romans 2, he has put it upon their heart so that all would know him. But why are they doing this? Why are they casting this off? Because their shame is so great from their guilt. I have someone very close to me that is deeply involved in the homosexual movement. He no longer can tolerate listening to me in any way, shape, or form. Any attempt at making a cordial interaction is immediately rejected. Why? I don't. I have never once told him that he is in sin and needs to move back from that sin. His guilt and his shame is so huge upon him that he can have nothing to do with me. The guilt and the shame of our world, the guilt and the shame of these subjects, the peoples, the nations, the kings, the rulers, it is so great that they want nothing to do with God. They can have no connectivity whatsoever. So also is it in our world today. These would have no room to speak of the Most High God because they cannot stand the guilt and shame that is ratcheting their sin-sick souls. This is a desire to dissociate. In our second point, we see, this, we see the response to these reprobates and it is a denouncement of despondency. A denouncement of despondency. The Lord responds to the despondency of those who desire to dissociate and he will denounce them for their actions. The response of the Lord to the dissociation is laughter. It is scoffing. The subject of the scoffing is the one seated in the heavens in verse 4. Literally the one enthroned it is the Lord, but notice the spelling. 
We always want to be careful when we're reading the Psalms. They're short. We need to read carefully. Notice that all of a sudden, the Lord that previously in verse 1 was all caps is now L, small o, small r, small d. It is speaking now of Adonai. Wherever we see that lowercase o-r-d, we must pay attention and recognize this. So we've switched from Yahweh and Messiah now to Adonai, the one who is the ruler, the one who is master. When we talk about, and we've spoken recently, about the necessity of us calling Jesus both Savior and Lord, Savior and Master, it is the Adonai component of his mastership over our lives that we are his slaves that is being brought forward in this term. Psalm 59.8 conveys the same ideas as verse 4. You can note that and look at it later. Psalm 59.8. So also in Psalm 37 and verse 13, where the psalmist in verse 13 of Psalm 37 says, give us insight as to why he laughs and scoffs. Or it says, the Lord laughs at him for he sees his day is coming. He is... El Roy, the God who sees. He knows the end from the beginning. He knows what is coming. He knows the wretched end that will come to these wretched people. And the Lord laughs. And the Lord scoffs. And then he responds in verse 5. Then he will speak to them in his anger. And terrify them in his fury. Can you imagine the terror of the anger of the Lord? In Psalm 21 and verse 8, it says, Your hand will find out all your enemies. Your right hand will find out those who hate you. You will make them as a fiery oven in a time of your anger. The Lord will swallow them up in his wrath and a fire will devour them. We're shortly going to be going to the book of Ezekiel on Wednesday nights, as I've mentioned, in Ezekiel chapter 1 this week. As we get into some of the early chapters in that book, you're going to see, and, and it's not a pretty picture, the wrath of God, the anger of God. Or maybe be reminded of the seals and bowls and trumpets from Revelation. God's anger is horrifying. Think of all that God's questioning brought to Job. Beginning in Job 38, and God starts asking him where he was. And this is not God's anger. This is simply an inquisitor to one who would speak back to the Lord and presume upon God. And what does Job do at the end? I'm covering my mouth. I will speak no more. I will sit in sackcloth in ashes. I have nothing I can bring to you. That wasn't even God being angry. It's a terrifying thing to fall into the hand of the living God. Job was terrified. Think about the nation of Israel in Exodus 19 and 20. They've seen God. They've seen the power of God. He has taken them through the 12 plagues. He's delivered them through the Passover. He's brought them through the Red Sea, parked them on the very edge while the cloud of fire protected the way for them, behind them, and kept the Egyptians from them and parted the Red Sea so that they could go through on dry ground. 
And as they get through and they get to Mount Sinai, and God says, I will make a covenant with you. Prepare yourself. Tomorrow or in three days, you will bring the people to me. Bring them to the mountain. Have them purify themselves. None of them are to have relations one with another. Let no animal touch the mountain. Let no person touch the mountain. And then Moses brings the people and God comes upon the mountain and the fire and the lightning and the mountain is trembling and God speaks to the people in his covenant. And it goes through the Ten Commandments as God speaks to the people in Exodus 20. And it gets through the Ten Commandments and the people say, we don't want to speak with him anymore. You talk with him. This is a terror and a fear that is beyond our conception. And he will speak to these in his anger. These who desire to dissociate. And it will be a terrifying fury. And he says to them in verse 6, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. Here is the content of the denouncement. God has installed, or better yet, consecrated his king. He has put him on Mount Zion. This is Jerusalem, or Mount Moriah. If you want to look for a great trick question in the Bible, it is what are the two names for the same mountain in the Bible? Mount Zion and Mount Moriah are the answer. They are both the same place. It is both Jerusalem. In Genesis 22-2, the Lord says to uh, Abraham to take his son, his only son Isaac, to Mount Moriah and to sacrifice him there. If we went ahead then to the establishment of the temple in 2 Chronicles chapter 3 and verse 1, we see God proclaiming that Mount Moriah, where Solomon built his temple, is Jerusalem, Mount Zion. God has established the king of righteousness, his anointed, his Messiah, his Christ, who is Jesus, proclaimed at the beginning of the Psalms as such. This rain is something we looked back at in Hebrews 1.8. And we discussed the parallel of that rain in, as it was quoted in Psalm 45 in verse 6. Do you remember these verses from that discussion? Psalm 45 in verse 6. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of joy above your fellows. You remember that? Shake your head, tell me you do, make me feel good. Thank you. This is the righteous kingdom that God has established. This is the one who he has set upon his throne. He says, that's fine. You want to live in that rebellion? You want to live in that wickedness? I have established the kingdom of righteousness. And it will not be shaken. Well, having responded to the desire for disassociation with a denouncement of despondency, God's voice continues in our third point in verses 7 through 9, a decree of dominance. A decree of dominance. Verse 7 tells us of the decree of the Lord. Look at it with me. I will surely tell 
of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Incredible to understand. And now notice also that we turn back to capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. Now we come back to Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God. And the rest of the verse that we're looking at was quoted for us in Hebrews 1.5. Today is a specific reference in this verse to the incarnation of God as man in Jesus. It doesn't show the beginning of Jesus as God. He has always been God. It shows that he became the God who was man in his incarnation. And this is the day which is being referenced. Today I have begotten you. Verse 8 reveals the extent of the dominance. Ask of me and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance. And the very ends of the earth as your possession. Nations is again the word here for Gentiles. So we have a return to our subject from verse 1. Only now God is giving them to Messiah as an inheritance. No longer are they those who will desire to dissociate. Psalm 22 and verse 27 details this condition further. And we look at Psalm 22, 27 and read, All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations will worship before you. What a glorious picture and contrast to verse 1. Beloved, this is where our hope lies. When we look at the world in turmoil, when we look at everything around us that seems to be going absolutely catastrophically out of control, that there is no order, just chaos reigning, we can look to this verse and understand that God will give all of the nations as an inheritance to Christ. There will yet be those who are rebellious. There will be those who yet rear their ugly heads. It says God will give him the very ends of the earth. That doesn't mean that he just gets both ends. This is an idiomatic term in Hebrew that he means he gives him all of the earth. It means everything. It's all-encompassing. Much like Psalm 19, when it speaks of the sun and it says it's rising or its circuit is from one end of the heavens and it's setting to the other end. Not just speaking about the rising and setting, but the entire movement of the sun that declares the glory of God. And then the sharp contrast is expressed in verse 9 and our idea of the decree of dominance comes to full fruition as we understand those portions of the Gentiles that will yet rear their rebellious heads against God. And it says in verse 9, you shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. This reminds us of the text we studied a few weeks ago from Psalm 110. The beautiful picture of the Lord saying to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And we got down to verse 4 and we saw that he will be a priest for or, forever according to the order of Melchizedek. And then we came to the next verse, verse 5, which said in Psalm 110, The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings in the day of his wrath. Contrast Messiah 
as the submissive savior to the Messiah who is the conquering king who will come with a rod of iron who will shatter earthenware pottery ever dropped a piece of pottery <laughs> no chance of putting that back together the pieces are everywhere it is destroyed that is exactly the idea that's being carried forward the second stanza confirming this Psalm 28 5 says because they do not regard the works of the Lord nor the deeds of his hand he will tear them down and not build them up beloved the actions of the wicked will be punished and they will be punished severely Psalm 52.5 says, But God will break you down forever. He will snatch you up and tear you away from your tent and uproot you from the land of the living. God will have his way. He will laugh and scoff at those who rear their heads at him. And he will have his way. Well, having expressed the voice of God in his decree of dominance, we see the final response and opportunity that is brought forward by the loving and gracious, merciful Yahweh in our fourth point, beginning in verse 10, a delay of danger, a delay of danger. Verse 10, the psalmist calls to attention the subjects of our first point, a desire for disassociation in verses 1 and 2. Look at verse 10 with me. Now therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. The kings and judges are recognized with a special grammatical device here in Hebrew. It is that letter O, O kings, O judges. That is usually associated with the woes and the wrath of God. Woe to you, O Israel. It is a special emphatic notation that indicates a strong warning is coming forward. Such as woe, O kings. The call for discernment is so that their reign will be one that reflects the righteousness of God's king in the decree of dominance. The one who he set on his holy mountains. The one who had the scepter of righteousness. For it is in their power to exercise their reign in righteousness. Although so many do not. Proverbs 8.15 addresses that idea where it says, By me kings reign and rulers decree justice. Isn't it amazing to go through and, and read through Samuel and kings and chronicles and look at the transition of the wicked and the righteous kings to see that there is a way that a king may exercise judgment. We would think that after they start going downhill that there would be no way and then comes righteous Josiah who's trying to orchestrate everything, trying to get everything moving in a positive direction, and they find the word of the law in the ruins as the priests are cleaning the temple and cleansing it, and they bring it to him. He's already doing everything he can to make it right, and he says, oh my goodness, we have not known. We have not obeyed. We have denied our God and our king. And he puts on sackcloth and ashes. And from there on, he is on a reign of righteous terror. 
Anyone who stands in his way, he is blowing apart. Have no part for the priests and the prophets of Baal. There is a way that there may be a righteous reign. The second half of verse 10 alludes to the danger in our part where it says, take warning, O judges of the earth. You know, beloved, that reminds me of Paul when he is in, uh, in Acts 17 and verse 30 where he is there in Greece and, and he says in Acts 17.30, Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. This is the gospel. This is the truth of what Christ has done. That there is now the time for salvation. Now is the time when we can go forth and proclaim Christ and proclaim that God has raised his son from the dead and that there is forgiveness for sins. But there is coming a day when we see the wickedness about us, it is evident that day is closer and closer. Our world is imploding. Our country is imploding. It does not mean we give up. We will never give up. We love this land. But we must recognize and never find ourselves on the offensive against God and his judgments against wickedness. So we must be aware. Verse 11 then follows up the warning with the instruction. And it says, Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Here our warning comes full circle. Now we could translate this first stanza as serve the Lord with fear. The, the synonymous elements, worship and service, are the same word. Interesting to understand that, isn't it? That we cannot worship God without serving Him. The Hebrew is so graphic and it has such a brilliant pictorial element to it. And yet it narrows down worship and service to the same word. Because, beloved, they are indistinguishable. If we are truly to worship the Lord, we must serve Him. If we do not serve Him, we are not worshiping Him. The two go hand in glove. So also is there a synonymous existence between the word fear and reverence. Yes, there is an awesomeness to God. There is, he is the only one who deserves the usage of that word awesome. And we revere Him. And we rejoice in Him. And we exalt Him. And there is an element of fear of Him. Because He is the God who is a consuming fire. He is the God whose wrath has consumed His holy people. Wait again until we get into Ezekiel and we start looking at this component of how Ezekiel through the Word of God is to tell the people of Babylon what God is going to do with the remnants in Jerusalem. It's a grievous act. Proverbs 1.7 tells us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. 
There's a, there's a positive component to fearing the Lord and recognizing who he is. We ought not lollygag and say, oh great, Christ has come, he saved us, I, I prayed the prayer, I'm just going to go on living my life. If we are in disobedience to God, we are storing up wrath for ourselves. And our world is storing up wrath for itself. When we see the judgment going on around us, recognize that component. These and many in our country continue to store up wrath for themselves and God will punish. He is a just God. He must punish. The second stanza, really in verse 11, just just fills me with excitement. Rejoice with trembling. We are to rejoice in God at all times. We are to understand that God has given us everything, that he is the beautiful and glorious provider and creator. And yet there's a trembling about that. There's a fearfulness about that. We owe a due. We ought always be considering that. We ought never, beloved, be comfortable. We ought never be grieved and racked with anxiety over the way that we fall short. But we ought never be complacent to say, I'm good. I'm there. I don't need to worry about my life anymore. You know, I'm past all those things. Yeah, I used to be the, you know, the whatever, the luster, the drinker. That's behind me now. Really? There's always something that's before us. And we serve a God who we ought rejoice in what he's done, but we ought rejoice with trembling because we owe a due to this God and we've seen the power of him. The paradox is beautiful. Psalm 119 and verse 119 says, You have removed all the wicked of the earth like dross. Therefore, I love your testimonies. My flesh trembles for fear of you and I am afraid of your judgments. I tremble but I rejoice. I rejoice because God has called my name. He has opened my eyes to the beauty of his son. He's opened my mind to the power of his word and he's given me the gift of proclaiming it with all my voice and with all my strength, with all my actions. What a delight it is. What a rejoicing that is. And what a trembling to consider that every action that I commit is being viewed and weighed not just by the Almighty God but by the world who I desire to show Him to. Verse 12 then picks up the final command. Do homage to the Son that He not become angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all those who take refuge in him. Do homage. Bow down to the son. That he not become angry. We've spoken about the anger of God. And the danger that exists in it. And, and the perishing that would occur. We consider the fire of Nebuchadnezzar and the three friends of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and how they were thrown into this fire that was heated seven times hotter. Those very ones that opened the doors perishing instantly from the flame. The wrath of God is so much stronger than that we cannot even understand it. And that is what is the danger that we face 
That is why we must do homage, do obeisance, honor, glory, bow down. For his wrath may soon be kindled. Let me read you a couple verses from Revelation chapter 6 in verses 16 and 17. Revelation 6 and verse 16 I'm going to begin at 15 actually. Then the kings of the earth and the great men and the commanders and the rich and the strong and every slave and free man hid themselves in caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come and who is able to stand? His wrath may soon be kindled. The trumpet will one day soon sound. I do not know if it will be this afternoon. I do not know if it will be in your lifetime or mine in a hundred years or a thousand. But I assure you that we have a role to do because it is coming much sooner than we expect. It will come as a thief in the knife, night as 1 Thessalonians 5 tells us. Will, be, will we be ready? Or will we be like the five virgins who slept and did not bring the extra oil for their lamps? Are we truly prepared? Are we reaching out? We have an opportunity now. Richard so beautifully proclaimed during our prayer time, we now have a format. We now have an opportunity to carry forth to this world, to this country, to this town, to our neighbors to those in the store, to those at work. What is going on in this world? People are without Christ. They need Christ. Those people in Louisiana, they need Christ. You need Christ. My neighbor, you need Christ. My clerk at Walmart, you must hear. You must know my God is a consuming fire. He is a God of love. He is a God of joy. He is a God of grace. But he is a God who is a consuming fire. And the wrath that is coming upon us is beyond anything that we could understand. How blessed are all those who take refuge in him. Psalm 5 and verse 11 says, But let all who take refuge in you be glad. Let them ever sing for joy. And may you shelter them that those who love your name may exult in you. Beloved, we are those who ought exult and rejoice that we sit in the shelter of the Most High God. But we cannot be complacent in our placement. We must understand all that God has called us to. We must recognize that our nations are in an uproar, that our world is devising a vain thing. The psalmist wrote this a thousand years before the birth of Christ. After our Lord came and reigned on this earth and was brutally crucified, his apostles carried forth in his behalf. And in the fourth chapter of Acts, we see this very text being brought forward by Peter. 
I'd like to share with you that text, and I'd like to ask you to turn there with me to Acts chapter 4 and verse 23. I think this is a fitting place for us to conclude our message for this evening as we consider the place in which we live in our world and that which we must do. Acts 4 and verse 23. This picking up after John and Peter had been released from the Pharisees for healing the man who was blind. When they had, rele- when they had been released... They went to their own companions and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard this, they lifted their voices to God with one accord and said, O Lord, it is you who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them, who by the Holy Spirit, through the mouth of our father David, your servant said, Why did the Gentiles rage? And the peoples devise futile things. The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles, and the peoples of Israel to do whatever your hand in your purpose predestined to occur. And now, Lord, take note of their threats and grant that your bondservant may speak your word with all confidence while you extend your hand to heal and signs and wonders take place through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed... The place where they had gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God with boldness. You'll note from here the congregation goes out to share with the the believers and with the world around them. Beloved, verse 29 is you and it is me. And now, Lord, take note of their threats. Take note, our dear Father, of the threats and violence uttered in our world. And grant that I and these whom you love, your bondservants, may speak your word with all confidence. 